Um, chapter 24, verses 1 to 5. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens she finds no favor in his eyes, because he does have a Jesus in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year, and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Okay. This law about divorce neither prohibits nor authorizes the divorce. What the law says is this. If a man divorces his wife, and she remarries. She can never go back to her first husband. Doesn't matter if the second husband divorces her or dies. Either way, she cannot go back to her first husband. That's basically what that law is saying. So if, if you divorce your wife and she remarries, she'll never be yours again. Perhaps the idea is to cause the man to reflect a little more deeply before he divorces her. And it protects the woman from being some kind of a marital football tossed back and forth between the men. Uh, but that, that was the law. So you could not go back to a former wife after she had married again. Um, and then he also says in verse 5 that you were exempted one year from military service if you had married uh, so that you could spend that, that first year with your wife. And we can see a lot of practical value in that. Comments and thoughts on those <coughs> passages. Sean. Is that only if she remarried? That um, yes. couldn't take her back? Correct. <laughs> He's setting up a lengthy case in 1 to 3 and then giving the, the law in verse 4. <coughs> Tim. Well, what were the odds of her getting remarried if apparently people didn't want to marry? Well, I don't know. Um, a little different, someone who's divorced perhaps, than someone who <coughs> you just found out was being falsely represented as being a merchant. But I don't know what the chances were. Today they're pretty good. <laughs> Other thoughts? Yes? Um, at our society today, it's like it's accepted that you marry for love and stuff. But sometimes, you know, it's helping with like business transactions and stuff. Like, what exactly was the culture in Perhaps it even varied some. I don't know if we have a definitive statement about that. We see some things that would be unusual to us, like, uh, you know, Rebecca becoming Isaac's wife, and then, then, getting to, then they got to know each other, some things like that. 
but on the other hand, you saw Jacob falling in love with Rachel and working for seven years for her. So maybe there were some varieties of, of cultures and customs, but I don't know that we have a definitive statement. Yes? This is kind of the random public pop up in my mind. You see how clear and yet short uh, God explains uh, this long story within just four verses. Now, men have written books that are a lot larger than the Bible, and yet, you know, this book covers thousands of years of history, and yet you see that it's not as big compared to some other books that we've seen. So, essentially, we have really. All that, all that we really need. We don't have all the answers from God, but we have all that we need. Well, certainly that's the case. And of course, the law for us is different than this law. Right. Uh, I don't know that there would be a prohibition on this in, in the New Covenant. Uh, many other things would be prohibited in terms of being unlawful to divorce or to remarry unless we divorce for the cause of fornication. John? But the New Testament law associated with this is just a short, simple. Yes, you're right. Yeah, it, it's much easier sometimes to understand what the Bible says than to say understand what men have said, trying to get around what the Bible says. <laughs> Other thoughts? Okay, um, we've got then a lot of laws on. Uh, I'll do that the wrong way. Caring for our neighbors. In fact, I think this is one of the more interesting sections. Uh, here, uh, you know, he deals with the debtor, with kidnapping, with a leper, with a debtor, a hired man, an innocent man, a vulnerable person, the poor, the criminal, even an animal. And uh, I think we'll see a lot of things that are very helpful for us in considering these laws. Um, so, would someone read? Uh, do start with uh, six to thirteen. <laughs> No one shall take a mill or an upper, upper millstone and pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then the thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Take care, in case of a leprous disease, to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priest shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to... Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge up to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You could not oppress a man who owed you money. Now, it would be typical if you give a loan to somebody that you take something of value from them as collateral. Something that then if the man defaults on the loan, you could sell or, or use or whatever to compensate yourself for that loan. But you couldn't take the upper millstone in pledge because the millstone was needed to grind the flour for the family to eat. You could not take something from this man that was essential to his well-being and his survival. Human survival takes precedence over creditors' rights. And so there was limitations on what you could use as collateral. Certainly nothing that that man needed. In seven, kidnapping 
uh, was to be uh, uh, the thief. The thief should die. The man who stole the person. Uh, that was the only type of theft that was punishable by death. That this was the theft of a person, and it was to be punished by death. As we suggested uh, yesterday, that would certainly outlaw the kind of slavery that occurred in the United States, which was based upon kidnapping. Um, verses 8 and 9, he warns about leprosy and reminds them of Miriam's exclusion from the congregation. And then 10 to 13, okay, so you make your neighbor alone. You can't invade the privacy of his home to take what you want as security, as collateral. Human dignity matters, and a creditor was not allowed to intimidate the man who owned him money. Instead, this man will bring you what he chooses as security. He could choose the collateral. He could borrow with honor and not just have to open up all his possessions to the creditor to choose whatever he wanted. His property is still his property. He is still to be respected. You see so much in this of the need to respect the dignity, even of someone who may be below you economically or socially. He's still a person. You must respect his home. If, in fact, you are keeping a cloak of his, a coat, as a pledge, you have to give it back to him before the sun sets because he'll need it to keep warm. So you really see God's emphasis. Even when you are generously loaning money without interest, you still have to respect the rights of the man who owes you. Comments and questions to verse 13. Yes, David. As we go through this, you know, we, we're able to you know, see, uh, for instance, with the millstone, that the, the principle that was trying to be passed on here. Uh, do you think the Israelites would have necessarily been would have seen that as well? Because, I mean, we see they're very, you know, meticulous about following to the letter, but would you think they would have been able to say, for instance, uh, well, I know I'm not supposed to take his millstone, but I have no problem taking his plow. Yeah, I don't think it's that difficult to understand. I think they could have seen it if they wanted to. Be my Other questions or comments? Kyle. So I think this would have, I mean, it's conscious of not charging interest and having limited collateral and the meaning of that collateral would have changed the mentality of their underwriting process uh, from what we have today. Just meaning that, you know, the purpose with which they gave, I mean, today we have a lender, you know, and and debtor relationship that is, you know, usually fraught with animosity. And uh, I, I just think they would have given a loan with much different purpose more yes, there was to be generosity in this. This was not just for the creditor to get his due, certainly not for him to make money. You had to be generous and kind to the man who needed to borrow. It's just a different mentality. You know, we, we often just have this, you know, this is my money, this is my goods, I can do with it anything I want to because it's mine. I worked for it, I earned it, I don't have the right, I don't have the the responsibility to help anybody. Well, that's just wrong. What we have is not ours. We we received it by the Lord, even if we worked for it. God's the one who gave us the health, the job, the intelligence, and all the other things that were needed to happen. 
So we need to consider it as being a gift from God. And we need to be generous in sharing that that God has given us with others. So it's really a different mindset than a lot of times we have about our possessions. Tim? This is different. Mentioned twice about the slavery in America being bad. Exactly. Um, but did the Israelite nation, like with their forced subjugation of other nations and slavery, was that was acceptable that they could? When though, when God told them to do that, yes, I think it was in that case. Just like they were allowed to kill when God told them. Other thoughts or questions? Um, 14 to, uh, let's do 14 to 22. <laughs> you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor as you, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your town. You shall give him his wages on the same day. Before the sun sets, he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner, or the father, or take a widow's garment of his flesh. You shall remember that you are a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheep in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you feed your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Okay. So if you have a hired worker, you have some responsibility not to exploit him. Uh, you need to give him his wages the day he earned them. You know, that may be a little different in our culture. But for them, many times people worked all day to buy the food they eat that day. So you had a responsibility of paying him every day so that he could eat. If not, he'll cry against you to the Lord, and the Lord will defend him. He will, he will take vengeance on you. We have to remember that the Lord loves all men. He loves the poor man. And, and, and the poor man is created in the image of God. So God is concerned about how we treat the ones he loves. I think we would look at people differently if we look at them the way God looks at them. So, so God is saying you can't exploit your hired worker in any way. If he is mistreated by you and he cries out to God, God will punish you for that. Um, and then look at verse 15. You don't kill the fathers for what their sons do or the sons for what their fathers do. The idea is every person is responsible for his own actions. I think we, we, we violate the principle of this sometimes. How many times do you see a, uh, 
young person, you know, a teenager or a young adult that's not doing right. And the first thing we say is, wonder what his parents did wrong. Well, there may be a lot of things that parents do wrong. But if someone's responsible before God, what's the first thing we ought to say? Exactly. You know, we sometimes shift the responsibility from the responsible party to someone else. If, if the son or the daughter does wrong, God will punish them. He doesn't punish the parents for the wrong of the son or the daughter. If the parents didn't do the right thing, he'll punish them for not doing the right thing. But, but they're not responsible for the guilt of their children. The same, by the same token, children are not responsible for the sins of their parents. Sometimes children feel guilty because of the things their parents have done. There's not a responsibility there. God is fair. He does not um, pass guilt down the family tree or up the family tree. Everybody's responsible for their own actions. I think that's a very important principle. In 17 and 18, you're not to pervert the justice due to an alien, an orphan, or take a widow's garment in pledge. They should remember that they were slaves in Egypt. The people who are greatly liberated ought to have the greatest grace toward others who are in need. Just as the Lord looked out for them, they should look out for others. Uh, what the Lord did for us is such a powerful statement as to the attitude we ought to have toward others who are in vulnerable positions. God was not only just with us, he was gracious and merciful and kind. And, and God has a particular thing for the orphan, the widow, and, and the foreigner. And I think the point of that is that they would have been the categories of people most vulnerable with the least clout, the easiest to exploit, maybe the ones who had the greatest need, maybe the ones that they could be most easily prejudiced against. And so God is especially looking out for the unfortunate. And we need to have that same generous spirit uh, toward them and absolutely not pervert the justice due them, not exploit them, not wrong them. Sometimes it's easy for us to do things we can get by with. If somebody doesn't have much clout, don't have good connections, then we can kind of run over them and nothing will really happen, except God notices. And God is a greater judge than even the judges in this country. Um, I'll pause there. There's several things. Um, thoughts or comments through verse 18? Yes, Mark. Uh, I've noticed a theme uh, for the past couple of chapters. A preservation of life of those who follow him. Um, and the judgment or death of those who do not follow him. So back in 23, 24, you see the preservation of just, of, of uh, 22, verse 6 and 8, the preservation of animals and um, preservation of when somebody builds a house, making sure no one dies from that. 23, 24, um, of those that are the landless people, the sojourner and um, even recently in 6 and 14 of, of those who are poor and needy just yes good point I think it's interesting in the Paul's last words to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 he said I've shown all things how so laboring you ought to support the weak 
remember the words of the Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And this was the instruction to the elders that how they were to work with the flock. Yeah, good point. Yeah, Acts 20, along uh, about 33 to 35, the responsibility of caring for those who are needy. Yeah, we've got that same responsibility. You see the generosity that was required and practiced by the early Christians. So we really have a responsibility to be generous and to care for those who are in need. You know, we've got to not be arrogant and not be selfish. Uh, it really tests our heart. You think about 19 to 22. They, they basically could not take all of the harvest out of the field. You know, if they forgot a sheep, they can't go back for it. You know, when they beat the hollow tree, they don't go back over it. Uh, you know, get what they get the first time, and the rest of the harvest is for the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow to be able to go in and take for themselves. Um, this allowed for the needs of the poor, the poor to be met without them even having to get a handout. They actually, actually have to go and reap the rest of the field. So they were able to work to gain what they had, yet it was still a generosity on the part of the farm owner. Um, so, you know, you just see that constant concern of the Lord, again, reminding them they were slaves and foreigners in Egypt. How should they treat slaves and foreigners? That's just such a big thing. And again, I think very important for us, I think very commonly violated by Christians, our attitudes often are arrogant. You know, we look down on people, assuming always, well, they must be no good. You know, they must be some kind of a, a, you know, bad person because they don't have what I have or they didn't come from the country I come from. You know, we've got to start looking at people the way God looks at them and not with some sort of prejudice or some kind of resentment. You know, you think about how Israel themselves was treated by God. They had suffered the injustice in Egypt that God rescued them for, for people who've been rescued, who were treated unjustly and they were given their freedom, how should then they treat those who, who they could exploit? And we have been rescued from a much greater slavery than they have been. We have received a greater mercy, a greater love, uh, and, and we just really have to uh, be careful that we don't run the, the, into the same uh, wrong attitudes. It's easy for us to, to not take seriously, I think, these passages. Uh, but certainly, everything we see in the Bible is God loves all men, and he wants us to. Thoughts and comments? Yes, Matt. Uh, this seems like one of those passages where you could do the commandment and miss the heart of the passage. So, you know, it says, don't beat your tree twice. You could see the man just hanging on that tree making sure he got everything the first time. <laughs> That's the way we are sometimes. We do the commandment, but we miss the heart of what God's really telling us. Good point, yes. Jill? I think like a major like, source of that arrogance that we have against people that maybe we don't feel that belong here is because we, like, we never lose sight of the fact that or we, we get too comfortable here and we start to think, we start to get a little too like homey here. We feel to realize that this definitely isn't our home. And we are in technically like a foreign land. We're we're trying to go back home. We're trying we're trying to get to heaven. And <laughs> there's nothing we have here that we'll take with us. Take. 
uh, along those lines of thinking, you know, put it in perspective, and it's a simple uh, yet very important thing, kind of perspective to understand is like if we look at people as a soul, not as another person, not as something, you know, that has another mind of its own, and they have their own thing that they're doing or whatever, they're, they're going to last. They're, they're, they're going to go one or two places. So if you look at people like that and start interacting with them, and that's just, with that perspective, then uh, it's going to change. I think it should change how you, you treat them. Certainly. Yeah. I'm trying to think of how we would exploit people today. And do you think that friends or people that we use exclusively for social fulfillment is a, is a is a form of exploiting them, basically basically using them for our own social and and fun and pleasure, and, and then not you know sharing with them the gospel, not doing what we know they need, and giving them what we we know their largely is for. Well, certainly, if you think about the parable of the good Samaritan, the guy who needs help, we have a responsibility to help. If that's true of a traveler who's dying how much more of a traveler who's dying in a spiritual sense. So I think we do have a responsibility to love others and, you know, certainly not to use them for our fun and then not rescue them from their life. Yes? It's interesting how James, when he's writing this letter, he makes a lot of comparisons and contrasts throughout the entire first chapter. At the very end, he makes exactly the point that I think it's probably made in these last several chapters of Deuteronomy is that pure and undefiled religion is going and visiting and taking care of those orphans and widows. And the second is keeping yourself away from those worldly flesh I heard someone say one time, it's a lot less about what you're going to be able to do for those orphans and widows. It's a lot more about what they're going to be able to do and how they're going to be able to shape you and your heart and your zeal for God and want to do those good works. Good thought. I, I think, I mean, I'm just thinking about some of these laws in this chapter, particularly, and thinking about those who are needy and being generous. Frankly, I just think some of this is un-American. <laughs> and I struggle with that. I mean, I, I, I mean I'm just trying to be reflective about that. I mean, I think our, at our core, we're a capitalistic society, and we like to, you know, extol the virtues of that, and there surely are some. But I think that this really is, is, is flying in the face of much of that way of thinking. And I, I really just say that to, to kind of help us to think about where we might unwittingly you know, fall into looking down on those and just taking advantage of people when that isn't really what God would have in mind. I spent some time recently with some Eastern Europeans and they've extolled some virtues of socialism that would be, you know, make most of our fingernails curl. And uh, and yet there's a lot of I think there's just a lot of, of good in thinking about uh, I mean, just some things that, that maybe we don't normally think uh, we are falling into the trap of. That maybe. Amen. Yes, Tim. Two uh, things. One again, getting the hint that the idea of illegal immigration in this country. The reason we have that is because we've got too much food and money. So if we don't want to have that problem, we should be rid of all that extra food and money we have. <coughs> Well, uh, the verse here where it says um, that the you know, sons are not responsible for the sons of the father, how does that fit in with punishments God gave that lasted generations? Well, I think the punishments 
as far as any assignment of guilt was to those who followed in the footsteps of their parents. Don't know that he punished. Uh, there were certainly consequences that the punishments that he gave to the wicked people may have had on innocent uh, people dependent on them. What do you think? Well, you mean the, the Moabites could enter the assembly forever? Yes. There were certainly times that God would treat nations as nations. Um, I mean, even when he would punish a wicked nation, there might be some righteous people in it. Of course, to me, that punishment was not necessarily the punishment of the, of the righteous people. They were killed. They were with the Lord. So, yeah, I mean, Ezekiel 21 talks about he's cut off the righteous and the wicked. I still don't see that as, as assigning guilt or actually punishing the righteous people. They're just more or less killed in the fallout of what he's doing to the good. Yeah, some of those things are hard to know. Go. He's saying, though, that they wouldn't be, this is here dealing with death, isn't it? Mm-hmm. In verse 16? Yes. Yeah. So, I, I was going to comment that, I mean, this generation in particular would have been thankful for this law. Right. And two, that it makes what Jesus did even more impressive because under their law, he should have had to die. Right. <coughs> Certainly. Joe? Do you really think in our culture that we see partiality as the sin James refers to it as? Perhaps not. Perhaps we wouldn't think about partiality as being so bad. And we need to be very fair-minded and just and loving toward all there's a lot of things to think about, a lot of good applications. I might uh, extend on a, one remark of Kyle. I've been kind of looking for a chance to say this, although this may be a little bit hard for some of us. Um, I found it interesting in my last trip to Brazil. So much of what we think about politically and economically is shaped by what we hear, how we look at things, what our experiences are. Two of the best young brothers I know in Brazil, they're brothers to me, they're brothers to each other, double brothers, and <laughs> brothers to me. About, they're about 15 and 20. And I've known them all their lives, love them very greatly, excellent spiritually, some of the best kids I know. And, uh, and yet their political philosophies, wow, they are on the opposite extreme of what most Christians I know here are. Excellent spiritually, we talked about some of those things. I said, well, you know, you've got some good points. You need to recognize that you've got brethren that would strongly disagree with you, and they've got some good points. So don't expect that everybody's going to agree with you. Don't be offensive in your promoting of those ideas. So they don't take those above the Lord. And uh, when I paid for their lunch, I told them that capitalism sometimes pays off. <laughs> but, but in Brazil, it's particularly common for brethren to have diverse political views and to live with that just very well. In America, we struggle with that. You know, if somebody doesn't believe our politics, we almost question their Christianity. And I think we've got to be really careful about that. I do think spiritual considerations may shape our political views on some points and should, and maybe haven't as much as they ought to. But, I, but I, in other ways, I think we've got to be very careful that we are um, not imposing some 
economic philosophy or some, you know, political preference on each other. You know, it's very helpful just to go back and read passages like this and think about them. I think in all of Deuteronomy, some of the things that we see is that some of the emphasis in Deuteronomy maybe are things that we would say, amen, that's what I've always thought, preach and then sometimes you come to things that you keep stressing and it's like, ah, I don't really like this. You know, I really think that this is, mm, you know, it's more difficult. Uh, we do that with nearly everything in the Bible, at least I do. There are some things that I really identify with, and it's like, yes, I can really see that. That's great. There's some things that are like, ah, oh, that's, that's not really how I see that or how I want to see that. Some things that really step on my toes and I don't, it very, makes me very uncomfortable. Um, but but when you read through passages and try to talk through them honestly, it really helps because you're just forced to confront them. You know, the first time or two you read something, you decide to try to pass it over. You know, we'll, we'll comment on that. But eventually, you know, the weight of it kind of gets to you, and you feel like you've got to say something. You've got to deal with it. You've got to think about it. All of us are still being shaped and molded. You know, I'm still learning. I'm trying to understand. Trying to apply. I'm realizing, wow. There's so many things I need to learn, I need to change, I need to improve my attitude and spirit. It's great to have this kind of form. It's great to be able to come together, people who are quite diverse, and work together on trying to understand the text, and trying to love the Lord, trying to love His Word, and trying to follow it. And uh, I think it's, it's really helpful to us, but it's definitely going to make us uncomfortable sometimes. It's going to cause us to question some things. And, and just keep trying to go back to the Lord for the answers. I, I, ultimately, that's all we know. <laughs> None of us have any information besides what the Lord has given us. So we're all trying to understand the same book and trying to put it into practice the best we can. I think it would be helpful if we could get this next little section in to uh, fill out the pattern and then leave to a stop. <laughs> <laughs>